expand and welcome again to Hiawatha Church. My name is Spencer. I'm one of the pastors here. And like Leah said this morning, welcome, especially if you're a visitor. We want to thank you for joining us. We love having visitors. We're grateful uh, that you're here. And yeah, as I was uh, prepping for today's sermon, I was actually thinking about when I was a kid and my mom would pack uh, me a bag lunch. And so it made me think about what, what, what some of my favorite memories were about uh, what she'd put in my uh, bag lunch as I was going off to a baseball game or something as a little kid. So I wanted to ask you guys, what, what's your favorite uh, thing that your mom or dad would put in a sack lunch for you? Maybe it was bugles. I, I know, uh, found out recently they still make these and they're still pretty awesome. Um, maybe it's squeeze-its. Anyone have squeeze-its? These are kind of like uh, melted Jolly Ranchers in like a wax bottle. Um, fruit roll-ups. Fruit roll-ups are great. Still make those. Dunkaroos. Anyone remember Dunkaroos? These are old. These are like a, it's like a cookie and then on the other side you could dip it in frosting. Those are pretty great. Or maybe it's just the quintessential great sack lunch for a kid, a Lunchable. Um, so anyway, what we're going to do today is we're actually going to look at a passage today. Jesus is going to interact with a little boy who has a sack lunch. And through that sack lunch, he's going to do an unbelievable miracle that will astound us and will point us ahead to the point of his life and ministry. So today, we're in the Gospel of John. John was one of Jesus' disciples, so he writes about Jesus' eyewitness accounts. This was John was there. He writes about Jesus' death, uh, his life, his teachings, his miracles, and we're going to see that today. So as we look at John 6, uh, you can turn there in your Bibles if you'd like. We're going to look at the sack lunch that fed thousands. We're in John 6, verses 1 through 15. Uh, it's in the worship folder, that insert that you got, and it'll also be on the screen behind me if you don't have a Bible there. All right, John 6, we're going to kind of just walk through this story. So after this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. So, so far in John, Jesus has shown up. He's a local celebrity. Crowds are following him. He's doing unbelievable things. He's, he's healing the sick. He's, he healed a boy that was near death that was 20 miles away. He's turning water into wine. He's speaking with authority that no one has seen before. And just recently, he has healed a man who is a cripple for his entire life. So the crowds are following because they saw the signs that he was doing. Verse 3, Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the, uh, the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming towards him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this uh, to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. All right, so Jesus has kind of went away from the crowds. He went up on a mountainside with his disciples, but now even more crowds are coming. And Jesus sees them in the distance. He sees that they're coming, and he talks to one of his disciples. So Philip, why, why does Jesus test Philip here? We don't fully know, but Philip was from this area, so maybe he's just asking a logistical question here. Hey, Philip, you live in this area. How do we feed thousands and thousands and thousands of people? But again, we, we, here we see that Jesus just said this to test him, for he knew what he was going to do. 
So Jesus is not surprised here. He knows that 20,000 people in just a few moments are going to be surrounding him on this mountain. And he is not surprised. He knows what he's going to do. He asks his question to get his disciples to verbally declare it's impossible. What, what, uh, to feed this huge crowd is not going to happen. And so we continue. Verse 7, Philip responds, Philip answers Jesus, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. So Philip responds, he says, 200 denarii, denarii is uh, one day's uh, wages. So he's saying 20,000, 30,000, $40,000 could not even give all these people just enough bread to kind of sustain them, to get them to another village to actually buy some Food. So Philip responds with just the absurdity of what's going on. Jesus, we'd need tens of thousands of dollars. And that wouldn't even feed all of them. They would just get a taste. And we're poor, and we have, you know, what's, what's going to happen? Next verse, verse 8. One of his disciples, so another disciple, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are they for so many. So I kind of, as I'm reading this, I kind of think, so Philip just says, Jesus, this is going to take tens of thousands of dollars to feed all these people. And then we hear uh, Andrew, who's kind of like, yeah, but there's a little boy here who's got a sack lunch. And then he kind of like realizes, oh, what did I just say? Like, how absurd. And then he, res- you know, then he says after that, uh, but yeah, what, what good is that for so many people? And so setting up the, the, the miracle here, we see just the absurdity of what's going on, or, or the, the, the insurmountable challenge, that there's thousands of people, we're going to learn in a second, there's upwards of 20, 25,000 people that need food, and they don't have the money to purchase it, and what they do have is a sack lunch with five little biscuits in there and some dried fish. Verse 10, Jesus responds, Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus said, or, uh, Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish as much as they wanted. So Jesus responds with this unbelievable miracle. We see here that there's 5,000 in number, that's uh, counting just the men. This actually, um, this Miracle takes place in all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and each one kind of gives different details that helps fill out, their, uh, helps fill out the story for us. So this 5,000, as it's probably described in your Bible in the heading, Jesus feeds 5,000, is talking about just men. The other Gospels, they talk about there's also women and children. So there's probably upwards of 20, maybe even 25,000 people here. And that's just a number, right? But right now I want you to just quickly look around this sanctuary. Just look around. There's less than 100 people here, right? So what's going on? Look around. I know it's, it's awkward. We're Minnesotans. This is tough to do. Pastor, don't tell me what to do. I hate it when they do that too. So there's about not even 100 people in this room. So there's 20,000 people. It's this room times 200. And that math is right. I had my son check. And that math is right. 200 of these sanctuaries full of people. And Jesus takes out one sack lunch and feeds all of them. If you've ever been to Minnesota United Stadium, seats 19,700, that entire stadium full of people, 
And with just a few biscuits and a few dried fish, Jesus feeds them all. Right? We need to understand that this is not just a story we kind of learned about in, in Sunday school or just, uh, you know, these gullible first century disciples uh, misunderstanding what's going on. This is an unthinkable miracle. 20,000, 25,000 people being fed miraculously. Our story continues. Pick it up in verse 12. And when they had eaten their fill, he told uh, his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered it up and filled baskets, 12 baskets, with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. And so to prove that this is not just sleight of hand or some illusion, uh, Jesus sends out his disciples to, to pick up the leftovers. And there's leftovers. There's actually 12 baskets full of leftovers. The leftovers are 12 times more than what we even started with. And what was the crowd's response? Verse 13, or sorry, verse 14. When the people, when the crowd saw the sign that Jesus had done, they said, this indeed, this is indeed the prophet who is come into the world. Perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So the crowd knows what's going on. They realize the miracle that they are seeing. And they're blown away. They realize, hey, this guy's special. This guy's from God. This guy must be the prophet. We'll talk about that, what that means in a second. And they go to make him their king. Yet Jesus withdraws. All right, we've seen lots of miracles so far in the Gospel of John. We're going to see more. And whether you're a believer or not, if you're not a Christian, you're probably quite skeptical about miracles. Even if you are a Christian, many of you just have science backgrounds, right? You're a scientist in your job. You studied science in high school or college. And we just don't experience things like this in real life. When else do natural laws stop working, right? And so what do we do with these miracles? These types of natural law-defying acts by Jesus that give us pause. And for many of us, just some real skepticism. So how do we deal with these miracles? Well, first, with this particular miracle, there was 20,000 plus people that experienced it. And of the four Gospels, again, it's in all four of them, the Gospel of Mark was written just a couple decades probably mid uh, AD 50, maybe the 60s, just a couple decades after this actual event happened. So it's described as the Gospel of John, or as the Gospel of Mark is spreading around Israel and, and the ancient Near East, these 20,000 plus people are, most of them are still alive. And so if they're reading, the, the rumors going throughout the ancient Roman world that this Jesus actually did these unbelievable miracles, but if they were there, you know, if 20,000 people were there and they knew it was a lie, they would be making objections. And we have no record of any of those objections. Second, and if you're, if you're you know, even if you're not a Christian, even if you just believe in the divine to some extent, but especially for us as Christians, if God is a creator God, if he created the cosmos, the universe, everything in it, out of nothing, just by speaking, then we have a category for God doing the miraculous, God breaking the laws of nature or creating the laws of nature. So if God can create everything out of nothing, then he can create enough bread and fish 
he can multiply that so Christians have a category for this. So even if it is still brings some skepticism or some doubt or you're still wrestling with it, we at least have a category for our God has done it, our God will continue to do it. And so it can help us make sense with what's going on here. But third, and probably most importantly here, if you're a skeptic, that's okay. If you're not, if you're not a Christian here, welcome. We, we, we want you here. We have people who aren't Christians every single Sunday joining us, asking questions, are curious about the Bible, have friends who are believers, that's why they come. Or maybe you're just uh, wondering who this Jesus is, or you're attracted to Christian community, or maybe the Bible is just intriguing to you. So if you're skeptical, that's okay. If, if that's you, don't get hung up on today's miracle. Okay, at least this one that we're talking about right now. This Jesus feeding 20,000 people with a sack lunch is not the foundation of our faith. You could, whether or not this happened or not, or you being certain that it happened or not, does, uh, it's not the center of what Christians believe. That is Jesus' death and resurrection, the ultimate miracle. That's what everything hinges on. The Bible even says, later writers in the Bible say, if Jesus did not die on the cross and was fully dead and then raised from that tomb, resurrected, never to die again. If that's not true, then people should like laugh at us. We should be you know, just embarrassed. People should look down on us and have pity on us because that's the one miracle that everything hinges on. So if you're not, here, if you're not a Christian here today, don't worry about this miracle. Just think, hey, they were all fooled. That, that's fine. If there's one miracle to get hung up on or to really think through, or be skeptical about, it's Jesus' death and resurrection. And we'll actually get to that quite a bit uh, later on in the sermon. All right, miracles happening all over the place in John. What should we learn from these? And we've, we've talked about this in, in other sermons as we've seen different signs and wonders that Jesus has done. So a couple things that we should be noticing, we should be seeing, we should understand about Jesus, and the crowds are, are doing this as well. First, we should see Jesus's divinity, that he really is God. Did you know that Jesus claimed to not just be from God, but God himself? Christians believe in one God, yet three persons. So God is Father, God is Son, God is Holy Spirit, and God the Son added humanity to his divinity, came into this world fully human and fully God, and he proved that to the watching to the watching world, to his disciples. It is even more unbelievable for the first century uh, disciples and first century Jews and Gentiles. It's more unbelievable for them that God would become human and come into the world in this way. Even more unbelievable than it is for us. And so Jesus, through his authority and teaching and through his signs, through his wonders, through his miracles, he's teaching uh, and, and proving, demonstrating that he really is from God. So, so far we've seen him do things like turn water into wine. We've seen him heal an invalid, someone who was crippled their entire life. We've seen Jesus bring a dying boy back to life from 20 miles away, not even touching him, just speaking it. And now Jesus publicly feeding 20,000 people. In the Old Testament, one of the main Jewish prophets, a guy named Elisha, and he did kind of something similar. Maybe you know this story. It's just a few verses in 2 Kings. But Elisha took 20 loaves of bread and multiplied it by the power of God to feed 100 people. But now there's someone new. 
There's a new prophet sent from God, and he's not just taking 20 to feed 100. He's taking five loaves and two fish and feeding tens of thousands of people. So more and more, for the crowd and for us as we're reading through John, more and more it's getting clearer that Jesus is not just, you know, a, a holy man sent from God, but that he actually is God himself. He's breaking natural law. He's bending reality. He's doing miracles that the ancient prophets never could have imagined. Doing miracles a hundred, a thousand times greater than Moses and Elisha and others. Jesus is showing the crowds and us that he's not just from God, but that he actually is God. The second thing we see in Jesus' miracles here are we also see his character. Jesus loves you. He cares about you. And not just your eternal destination. He cares about your needs right now. In another one of the gospel accounts of this uh, miracle, we see Jesus uh, described as seeing the crowds and having compassion on them. He didn't just say, it's kind of interesting, he didn't just say, okay, 20,000 people who are starving, okay, here's a great lesson, a great uh, opportunity for you to learn how to fast. It's a good thing for spiritual people to do. So just fast and stop whining about being hungry because I'm going to teach you a bunch for the next few hours. But instead, Jesus had compassion and love towards them and said, they're hungry. They're like sheep without a shepherd. And he loved them. And that is what moved Jesus to do this miracle. Jesus is concerned, of course, with your spiritual state. We'll talk a lot about your spiritual state today, your spiritual life. Yet Jesus cares about your physical state as well. He cares that you're hungry, that you're sick, that you have a migraine, that you have the flu. He cares deeply about your physical lives in the here and now. In fact, if you remember, Jesus' disciples said, Jesus, teach us to pray. And what's one of the first things Jesus teaches his disciples and us to pray, right? Our Father, who is in heaven, your name is holy. Give us today our daily bread, right? A recognition that God gives us good gifts. He gives us sustenance. He gives us food and drink because he loves us. So we see Jesus' character. He loves these humans. He loves you. He loves me. And not just your spiritual or eternal state, which he does, but he loves your physical state. These bodies here right now. He loves you deeply. Third thing we see very clearly, and the crowd picks up on this. So we, you know, maybe did not pick up on this. But the crowd sees what's going on. Third, Jesus shows us through this miracle his purpose and mission. Maybe most importantly, Jesus is showing this crowd of 20,000 and us who are reading this story, who he is, who he is, and what he came to do. And in fact, we, we see this. The crowd, right, as, as soon as they see this happen, what do they want to do? They recognize something. Hey, he's the prophet. The prophet. We'll talk about what that means in a second. And they respond by saying, let's make this guy our king. His miracle, he just did demands that we respond in a certain way. But they were confused. Tim Keller, writing about miracles, says, Jesus' miracles are not just a challenge to our minds, but a promise to our hearts that the world we all want is coming. And the crowd gets that. They're close. They miss it. But 
they get that. The world that they want is coming. A king is here. A king that's from God, that can command nature to obey him, and it does. But the crowd missed it. They didn't fully understand Jesus' mission. They didn't fully understand what type of prophet, what type of king, what type of Messiah he was. So Jesus, setting up a food truck that miraculously serves unlimited filet fish sandwiches to 20,000 people, it is unreal, right? Unbelievable. Yet, what Jesus is doing here is just a taste of his mission, a taste of the world that he really wants to usher in. So actually, the crowd here, the, 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 the world that they desire to come, they're thinking way too small. Jesus' mission is so much greater than just a small earthly kingdom for a period of time for a specific people group. So much greater than that. Now some of you, as, as we're reading this story, most of you probably didn't know about the Elisha thing. I didn't either until I read it in a commentary. But some of you might be thinking, actually this story reminds me of another event in Israel's history. And the crowds pick up on this, right? This crowd is full of 20,000 Jewish people that know their history, that know the Old Testament. And many of them, if not most of them, are, are thinking, hey, what just happened resembled one of the most important historical events in our people's history. So if you're familiar with the Old Testament, you might have uh, seen what Jesus was doing and it made you think of, hey, I kind of remember like this happening to Israel and with Moses and with the people in the wilderness. There actually was another time where a bunch of Jews were wandering in the wilderness, hungry and without food, and a prophet from God miraculously provided bread for them to eat. And in one of the most historic moments for the Jewish people, God, through Moses, gave the Israelites bread to eat in a miraculous type way. In the wilderness, Moses gave them manna, bread that came from heaven that they could gather and eat until they were full. And now this is happening again, but in a much greater way. So there is a new Moses that is here. A new Moses is here. An even greater Moses that's doing stuff that Moses could never do. And the crowd's picking up on that. In fact, the New Testament even writes about this. So after Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension, Christians begin to write about what happened and Hebrews, we read this, for Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. Christians pick up on this. Moses, great. Moses, you know, on the Mount Rushmore of Israel's history, Moses is there. Yet there's someone even greater than the greatest prophet in Israel's history. In fact, we saw, they, uh, we saw the crowds connect this, right? So, uh, in verse 14, when the people saw the sign that was done, they said, the prophet is here, the prophet. And you maybe remember this title, the prophet. It's a messianic prophecy. So it's a prophecy about the, the Christ, the Messiah, the, the, the reigning king that would be sent from God to come into the world to fix all of humanity's problems, the Messiah. There's a prophecy back in Deuteronomy written by Moses about a prophet, the prophet, who would be sent by God and speak God's words. If you remember back in uh, when we were talking about John the Baptist, the crowds were wondering, John, are you the prophet? And John said, no, I'm not that guy. But listen, this is the, 
the prophecy written by Moses about the Messiah, who is also called the prophet. Let's read that. Deuteronomy 18, verses 15 and 18 say, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, a prophet like Moses, from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Verse 18, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among the brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And in fact, the New Testament actually picks up on this. One, another one of Jesus' disciples, the Apostle Peter, uh, in a sermon in Acts 3, writes about this and says, hey, the prophet prophesied back in uh, Deuteronomy 18, that is Jesus Christ, the, the Messiah that was predicted, that would come. This is speaking of Jesus. And in fact, if you remember the last verse in last week's passage, Jesus said, Moses wrote about me. Moses, the author of the first five books of the Bible, Moses, who penned the law, wrote about me, Jesus said. We're seeing this play out again and again today in our passage as well. A new prophet is here. A fulfillment of Deuteronomy 18. He's the messianic prophet predicted that will come who will even be greater than Moses himself and will speak the words given to him from God. But here in our passage, we see that Jesus is demonstrating that he's not only the fulfillment of this messianic prophecy, he's not only greater than Moses and that he's the prophet that Moses spoke of, he's also a greater giver of bread from heaven. He's the greater manna giver. So I alluded to this story before, but back in Exodus, God saves his people out of slavery in Egypt. He walks them through the Red Sea. He's leading them towards the promised land. And they're fumbling around in the wilderness because of their sin. And they're starving. And they're saying, oh, back in Egypt, we had meat. And we had these great vegetables. We want to go back. And so God, in his patience and kindness, he gives them food. Food that's bread that literally falls from heaven that's called Manna, And every day they would go out and pick it up and they would enough food to eat. Back in Exodus 16, we read about this. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. Moses said to the people, it is the bread the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Everyone is to gather as much as they need. And now this prophet from God is bringing bread again. To God's people. He's bringing bread to tens of thousands of Jews who are in the wilderness, yet in an even greater way. So Moses, in the wilderness with the nation of Israel, has compassion on the hungry Jewish people. He provides food for them miraculously through God's power, and all eat and are satisfied. And now a, mo a new Moses shows up. And the crowds are connecting the dots. They're in a desolate place. Jesus has compassion on the hungry crowds and he provides food miraculously for them. And again, everyone eats and they are satisfied. Yet Jesus is not just a new Moses. He's a greater Moses. When God worked through Moses to give the nation of Israel manna, they had to work. They had to gather it. Every day they had to go out and work. They had to gather this bread in order to eat. And if they didn't, they would starve. 
But with Jesus, did you notice what Jesus does before this miracle? Intentionally? What does he tell people to do? Did he say, I'm just going to take these loaves, toss them in the air, and they're just going to, you know, multiply into millions and fall on the ground and gather? No, he tells the crowd, sit. Sit down. You no longer are going to gather sustenance. You no no longer are going to go and work for the food that's going to keep you alive. But Jesus says, sit down. I will do all the work. Sit down, open your hands, and I will distribute this miraculous bread from heaven. In Moses' story, there could be no leftovers. If you gathered enough bread for two days, the next day when you woke up, the bread was actually covered in maggots. It was worthless. It didn't last. You had to work every single day to survive. You had to gather bread every single morning if you wanted to be fed. And now notice with Jesus, the leftovers are overflowing. Jesus is not stingy with his love for the people. Jesus is not stingy in his generosity of sustenance, of bread. And as we're going to say, Jesus' bread, his body is connected to his salvation. And here we see we don't work for our salvation, but we sit and we receive. And Jesus' salvation is not stingy. It continues. It lasts through the next day. And in this miracle, we're seeing glimpses of Jesus' kingdom breaking into the world. It's not fully here yet. He hasn't died yet. He hasn't been risen from the grave yet. But his kingdom is breaking in. The gospel is similar in a lot of ways, as we're seeing here, yet oh so different and oh so greater in the most important ways. Now one more thing we see in today's passage that helps us understand what kind of Messiah God was sending, what kind of prophet, what kind of Christ Jesus was going to be, unlike Moses. He was a prophet like Moses, but greater. And in fact, he was a royal prophet. And the crowds pick up on this, right? The crowds say, uh, he indeed is the prophet. And if he is the prophet, what's our response? They wanted to come and take him and make him king. So this Messiah is not just a prophet, but he's also a king. He's also royal. Yet, as we know how our passage continues, Jesus perceived, he knew what they were about to do, and he didn't let them. Right? He withdrew. He he went to the mountain to be alone by himself so that they couldn't make him king. Which seems strange. Seems strange to this crowd. Probably seems strange to us, wondering, well, why not? Why, Why doesn't he want to be king? He's the king of kings. He's the king of the Jews. Right? What is going on here? Does Jesus need to heal more people before he can be king? Does he need to teach more things? Is he just gun shy? What, what's going on here? And the reason Jesus is a royal king, yet does not become king here in John 6, is because he knew the way that he would become king. And it was not being forced to be king by this crowd. If you uh, are familiar with Jesus' temptation by Satan in the wilderness, another passage that kind of mirrors and fulfills 
Jesus says, true Israel, where Israel failed in the wilderness. In that, one of the things Satan does to Jesus is he shows the kingdoms of the world, right? And he says, hey, if you just worship me, Jesus, you can get all this. You can be king. And you don't have to go through the cross. That was Satan's great temptation to Jesus, a crossless king. But Jesus knew that that is not how he would become king. Now was not his time. He was not going to be forced to be king by a crowd. He knew his mission. In fact, Jesus, actually when he gets arrested by uh, the, the Jews and the Romans, he's before Pilate. This is his response. Pilate's like, are you a king? And Jesus says, yeah, I'm a king. But my kingdom, of course, it has some implications. It is breaking into this world. Yes, Jesus does care about your physical bodies now. Yet on a much greater level, Jesus says, my kingdom's not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom's not of this world. Of course, Jesus' kingdom concerns this world and is breaking into this world right now. But if Jesus was a, only a physical king or only a Jewish king, this 20, these 20,000 people would be storming the castle, busting Jesus out of jail protecting him, setting up his physical kingdom. But Jesus knew the way that he would become the royal prophet king, and it was not how the crowds thought as they tried to seize him and make him their king. Jesus knew. Jesus knew his ultimate mission. He knew why he was sent from the Father, and he was dead set on it. His mission was not to ride in on a war horse that would overthrow the oppressor, receive a crown, and sit on a throne, but rather, Jesus' mission would include a humble donkey, a crown of thorns, and a rugged cross. Jesus denying the crown right now, not letting the crowds make him king because he knew what his mission was, because he knew the moment he must die and then become king. Reminded me of, the, of a powerful moment in the final Harry Potter movie, the, the last book. Um, and in it, we have kind of two characters interacting. Professor Dumbledore, he's like the headmaster. And then uh, another Professor Snape there on the left. In this scene, Professor Dumbledore, he's revealing his master plan that the only way that they can defeat this unbeatable enemy this evil wizard named Voldemort, the only way that they can defeat him is through something shocking happening. And it, Snape is just in shock as he kind of puts the pieces together. The only way for the evil Voldemort to be defeated is through the death of the Chosen One. Not only that, but it has been Dumbledore's plan from the very beginning. And as Snape is realizing this horror, he says these words to Dumbledore. You've kept him alive so that he can die at the proper moment. You've been raising him like a pig for slaughter. So Snape's realizing that Dumbledore's plan can only work if Harry dies at the right time. And the way that Harry would be the chosen one, the greatest destroyer of evil, was for him to have to die at the hands of the evil one. The way that Voldemort would be fully and finally defeated would be through Harry's 
sacrificial death. Through Harry being slaughtered like a pig at the proper moment, evil would be defeated. And Jesus knows this. Jesus knows his mission. He didn't come to be set up as an earthly king, nor was he ready to die right at this moment at the hands of the Romans and the Jews. And we're going to see this come up over again and again in the Gospel of John. I think like eight or ten times we're going to see in the next 15 chapters, it was not Jesus' hour yet. Both John, the author, and Jesus say this. It's not my time to die yet. It's not my hour. I know what my mission is. I know what my purpose is. Over and over again in John, we're going to see that Jesus' hour had not yet come. And then when it comes, he's convinced. And he's dead set on going through with it. Like Harry, the way in which Jesus would accomplish his mission, the means by which Jesus would defeat not just evil, but also defeat death, is through his own sacrifice. That was Jesus' mission. That would be his final and ultimate act of humility and power. His death at the proper moment as a slaughtered sacrifice would be what would inaugurate him as king, the king of kings. Jesus, the ultimate prophet, would become royal and claim his throne and crown through his brutal death, betrayal, and unjust execution. A death that, like Harry's, would bring the final and ultimate blow and destroy the enemy. As verse 15 alludes to and foreshadows, Jesus again would go up to a mountain and he would be alone on that mountain. Men and crowds would not make him king by force. It would be on Calvary, a new hill, that Jesus would hang alone from a cross. It would be through this that Jesus would become king. It wasn't going to be this Passover that Jesus would be king, but on another one. And on that Passover, he would give bread to his disciples again and tell them that this Passover meal would symbolize the bread and would symbolize the how Jesus would become king. How he would fulfill his role as Messiah and prophet. Men and crowds would reject Jesus, but through his obedience to the Father's plan, abandoned on a hill on another Passover, he would become the king of kings. All right, one more thing. So Jesus, we've seen, he does the unimaginable. 20,000 people fed, which is five loaves and two fish. Yet as we continue in the chapter, I'm going to spend the next month going through the rest of John 6, we're going to see that Jesus makes it abundantly clear. Yes, I did the unimaginable. Yes, I made 20,000 people think that I deserve to be king right now. Yes, the crowds believe that I am the prophet, prophesied by God, the Messiah, the sent one. Yet, Jesus makes it clear, something even greater is coming. There's something greater than this bread that he just multiplied. It's no coincidence that Jesus does this miracle and then teaches on it. Abigail Dodds, in her book on Jesus as the bread of life, writes, Jesus is the bread come down from heaven. He is our miraculous provision. The manna isn't quite what we were expecting. It is eternally better. It is Jesus Christ. Something greater is coming. A better bread. 
a better manna from heaven, a better miracle. And Jesus is saying that is himself. That is his body. You were tempted to believe that the sustenance, that the gift, that the miracle is greater. We're all tempted to do that. We fall into this a hundred times a day. But when we do that, when we think the bread that Jesus multiplied is the greatest, is the point, we're kind of like the fool that is holding his baby, yet is enamored with his phone that is a picture of his baby in the other hand. The fool who's gushing over the pictures of his beautiful baby, yet all the while the real thing is right there in his lap. We too cannot see Jesus' miracle of feeding people physically as greater than the greater miracle, the greater act that Jesus is doing, which he unpacks. Now before we get to that, like we said when we talked about Jesus' character. Jesus deeply loves you. He cares about your physical bodies. He cares about your hunger, your illness, your mental health. These actual bodies. And so we care too as Christians. Jesus cares for our physical bodies, our pain, our hunger, our emotions, our daily bread. And so we, as Jesus' followers, as Jesus' hands and feet, as his body, we do the same as well. We care for each other deeply. We meet each other's tangible needs. And we share that, the whole church, with our neighborhood and our city as well. We put lots of our money, lots of our resources, our time, our, our hours of service towards meeting tangible needs like Christ. Whether it's through every meal where we pay for food and we package it and we put it in kids' backpacks who are suffering from food insecurity so that they have food over the weekend, whether it's through providing food or clothing to Tandem, a local organization that we love deeply, or whether it's uh, through the Aliveness Project. Many years we've given them actual clothing for the winter. We want to show that Jesus and us in turn also care about tangible needs. Yet, or and, we also know our neighbors and our city and ourselves have a much greater need than just food or clothing. We know people out there and ourselves included need more than just physical bread. We need the bread of life, the new manna come down from heaven that will fill and sustain us forever and eternally. We know that people out there and including us, people need physical clothing, but we need more than that. We need to be clothed in Jesus's righteousness. We need to have our shame covered. We need to be warmed and protected by being in Christ. And so as we serve and love and give tangibly to our neighbors, to each other, to our city, we pray for more. We pray that this would not be the end. We pray that an even greater need would be met. We don't just stop there providing for tangible needs and feeling good about ourselves, but we pray that God would do more that he would bring a, a greater bread, a greater manna, a greater sustenance, a greater miracle. At the end of John, Jesus really helps us see this clearly, and we're going to get there in about a month. At the end of John, John 6, he says this to the crowds, to his disciples. He has just done this incredible miracle, and now he talks about it. He helps unpack, sees 
the, the truly greater gift. He says, truly, truly I say to you, whoever believes in me has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness. They ate bread that miraculously appeared from heaven, from God. Wonderful, right? Yet, and they died. They're all still dead. Everyone who received Jesus' bread when he fed 20,000 people, are, they're dead right now. It was fantastic, wonderful, a great miracle from God, yet they all died. But Jesus is saying there's something greater. Verse 50, this is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. So Jesus helps us. He connects these dots. He says, God has done, God has fed his people in miraculous ways for forever. Through manna in the wilderness, for 20,000 people on a mountain a few thousand years ago, and he's doing it again through his son. Jesus is the ultimate manna. What the manna was pointing ahead towards is the ultimate uh, bread. And he says, if you eat of my body, if you have faith in me, you will live. Everyone else who ate the bread, they, they died. They experienced something great, yet they still died. But I am the fulfillment of that. I'm even better than that. And he says, the bread that I will give you for life, for eternal life, is my flesh. I'm going to die on a cross, and if you put your faith in that, if you put your faith in my shed blood, broken body, if you eat of that, which communion symbolizes, the new covenant symbolizes, you will receive life. As we leave here today, this whole miracle by Jesus focuses on his, his, his deep care for us, for people, his compassion towards others. Again, he didn't just say, fast. He didn't just say, stop whining about your hunger. I have, I have something greater to teach you. But he actually cared about their physical needs. And he does for you as well. So let us see God's provision, God's gifts to you and me, and let that lead you to thankfulness. See God's graciousness and lead you towards worship. Let you see God's gifts towards you and let that point ahead to something even greater. Let us not be entitled or only think about ourselves, but as Jesus is trying to help us see there's a greater food out there. So when you eat bread, when you drink wine, when you take communion, when you experience good gifts, let that lead you to thankfulness and worship and to see God's graciousness towards you. Just like Christians for 2,000 years thank God when we have a meal. Not just so we don't get poisoned by the meal as if we're superstitious, but we thank God because he's given it to us, and it reminds us of something even greater. And even more than that, High Wealth of Church, let God's provision and gifts lead you to him, the bread of life, the manna from heaven, who brings not just sustenance for a few hours, but for eternal life. Jesus ends our passage, uh, when we jump ahead later in John 6, by telling us, He's speaking to us today. He's speaking to you today. You who are not just hungry right now because it's 12, it's lunchtime, but you who are 
hungry, who's in your soul, you're searching for something. Or you know you're going to die. Or you know that nothing good in this life truly satisfies. Jesus says to you today, he says to me today, to us, I am the living bread that has come down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Strange words, gross words, confusing words, yet really clear words that Jesus says, trust in what my broken flesh is. My, my sacrificed body on the cross that communion symbolizes, that we celebrate as a church regularly. Put your trust in that and you will have eternal life. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this good news, this, this lowercase g good news that you care about us deeply, our, our physical needs, our bodies, our hunger, our sickness. But even greater news, capital G, good news is that you sent your son into this world as the ultimate manna from heaven, the ultimate bread from heaven that will satisfy our greatest longings, our greatest needs, that if we trust in you, if we eat your, your body and drink of your blood, that we will receive eternal life. So God, help us to believe that, whether uh, we've never believed that before, whether we're not a Christian and just curious of who this Jesus is and what he came to do, Help us to believe. Help us to believe. God, we need help with this. We're so easily distracted by important yet much smaller things like physical hunger or uh, suffering or, or, or pain or discomfort. Help us to not just look at the phone and see that this great picture of a great gift, but to look at what it points to, the greater gift. And we need your help with that as well. Thank you, Jesus. You loved us to death and back that you shed your blood, so that we could live forever through faith in you. We pray this in Jesus' name.